Welcome to Episcopals, bringing you the latest in faith-based advocacy from the Episcopal Church Office of Government Relations. Hi, this is Patricia Kisari, the International Policy Advisor for the Office of Government Relations. In this episode of Episcopals, you will hear our recorded closer look with OGR live session on PEFRA, featuring Tom Hart from The One Campaign. I hope the conversation is enlightening and meaningful to you. Enjoy. Welcome, everyone. Um, Thank you for joining us uh, for a closer look uh, on the conversation on paper. Uh, Just for those who don't know, uh, we do uh, closer look conversations uh, frequently and focusing on different topics. Uh, And today we wanted to focus on uh, PEFA, which stands for the President's Emergency Plan for AIDS Relief. Um, My name is Patricia Kisare. I serve as the International Policy Advisor for both the Episcopal Church and the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America. Um, I'm joined today by my colleague, Rebecca Blatchley, who is the Director of the Episcopal Church Office of Government Relations. And we also have a guest speaker, Tom Hart, who Rebecca will introduce in a moment. Um, But just as a way of background, I just wanted to say, for those who don't know, um, the authorization for PEFA has expired at this point. It expired at the end of September. And at this point, we don't have uh, a new reauthorization from Congress. We don't have a bill yet. Many of us have been advocating for this, and uh, this conversation is part of our effort uh, to remind us, to inspire us uh, to continue our important advocacy on PEFAR. Thank you, Patricia. Thank you, everyone who is joining us today and who is listening or watching at a later later date. I'm Rebecca Blatchley, Director of the Episcopal Church's Office of Government Relations, and am thrilled that we have with us today Tom Hart uh, as our distinguished guest with a tremendous amount of expertise um, who can speak about PEPFAR and the program, but who can also just share a little bit about his perspective of working in faith-based advocacy. Tom is president of the One Campaign, uh, although it was recently announced that he will be taking on the new role as president and CEO of Interaction. Um, So a very exciting um, transition for Tom. Tom has been with One since 2003 and most recently served as acting CEO while Gail Smith was at the State Department. Um, Tom has incredible experience in working on ending poverty. He has a deep knowledge of and expertise an experience in making change happen and a commitment to one's mission. Um, he has been part of the creation of PEPFAR that we'll be speaking about today more generally, but has also been incredibly influential in working on issues like debt relief and other private sector investment um, and other anti-poverty initiatives. Um, before joining the One Campaign, Tom held the role that I do now. So he was the director of government relations for the Episcopal Church. So also knows what it is like to come at this work from the perspective of faith-based advocacy. So Tom, to start off our conversation, first of all, thank you so much for being here. We're just oh, really honored to, be here. honored to have you. Um, if you could just tell us a little bit about your background and um, how you came to, to be in the role and, and how you got started out. 
Sure. Well, thanks, Rebecca and Patricia. I really appreciate your invitation. And it's I was just really pleased to be asked. Um, it feels I love being able to talk to my fellow Episcopalians and to support the office that I grew up in. Um, I really do feel that way. And it's uh, it's an incredible office. And Rebecca, your leadership has been tremendous and and well felt around the community. So thank you. So I, I let's see, how did I get started? Um, I mean, I'm a I'm a, pre a preacher's kid, so with all the scars and all that, no, 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 it was great, a great, great experience. My dad actually was elected the bishop, diocesan bishop of Hawaii um, when I was, right before I went to college, and uh, so grew up in the church, and during college actually ended up uh, interning in, Rebecca, in your office, so I, I held just about every position in that office, from intern to director, through my years, uh, fell in love with the work that the office did, learned about the positions that the church held and figuring out how to work in coalition with other faith-based groups and other and secular groups on issues all across the spectrum. And uh, really fell in love with the work of uh, being an advocate and um, trying to bring, you know, both my voice, but more importantly, the voice of uh, our constituencies and our people in the pews to their representatives. Uh, we. We, we started the Episcopal Public Policy Network uh, during my time, and uh, which was brand new. I, <laughs> we actually hand copied and hand cut thousands of little postcards because this was before, you know, the, the original several rounds. Yeah, I think I still have calluses on my hands from doing that. And, and Tom, um, we, you know, we actually have, based on that, we have a green postcard project initiative uh, <laughs> to harken back to those days and for our Episcopal Public Policy Networks who know it. So we have a, a whole initiative named in the honor of those green postcards. That's amazing. Amazing. Little known fact, the original first three or four rounds were um, more orangey salmon color, and then we switched to green. So not that that's very interesting, but I thought I'd share. <laughs> um, anyway, uh, and that was back when I had far less white hair. Um, so work, uh, I actually ended up leading the work around Jubilee 2000 in the United States, along with Bread for the World. So the Episcopal Church uh, played an incredibly important role in actually leading into the Lambeth Conference, where all of the bishops from around the world gathered. And Jubilee and debt relief was their number one social issue they wanted addressed. So the the, the U.S. government relations team for the church wrote the briefing that went to the communion on how to tackle this and how they could raise their voices. We ended up leading the help the introduction of legislation um, on both sides of Capitol Hill. And that's how I got to meet Bono, who, by the way, I didn't know who he was. This is the lead singer of U2. At the time, the lead celebrity spokesperson for Jubilee and Debt Relief, he would come to the United States and I would meet him and say, well, you need to meet Senator X or Congressperson Y. This is what's going on. I think the fact that I didn't really know or care who he was was one reason he liked working with me. Um, so we ended up working together quite closely. And when he started um, this organization, first called Data, the predecessor organization to one, uh, I went over there to help them get started. And I have been there ever since. It's been 20 years. So um, I got my my start in the world of advocacy, working with the Episcopal Office of Government Relations, and it has been foundational to everything I've done since. That's incredible. And what um, 20 years it's been. Um, <laughs> Could you just speak about what it was like in those early days, you know, with the Jubilee project, but then looking to how PEPFAR got started and how the global community really was able to come together um, around this and then 
advocates were able to push the U.S. government also to take such significant action. Yeah. So most people don't know that PEPFAR is a direct descendant of Jubilee 2000 campaign. It was that curious set of relationships between Republicans and Democrats, between rock stars and you know street protesters around relieving the debts. And all these interesting friendships and working relationships happened. And it was very clear in the wake of the Jubilee 2000 movement that the crisis of HIV AIDS was dominating um, communities of faith, but also communities at large across the poorest parts of the world, particularly Sub-Saharan Africa. So we immediately pivoted those relationships and that work to working on HIV. And as it turned out, with a young Bush administration who thought uh, we were able to start a conversation about our experience through the faith community. Our ministers were frankly un not able to minister to their flocks because they were spending seven days a week putting uh, people in the ground. Um, thriving businesses in coffin making. You know, uh, World Vision talk, talked about the experience of they had that child sponsorship programs, but their um, the 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 children were were dying or becoming orphans. So it was the faith community really brought voice and experience to the challenge of HIV/AIDS and, and made it real. Uh, where HIV had become, fortunately, more of a chronic disease in the West at a tremendous expense, by the way. Of course, it was ten to fifteen thousand dollars a year for a multi medicine drug regimen, which was completely out of reach for people who needed it across uh, the developing world. So the faith community brought voice to that to the Bush administration, as well as the doctors and advocates who, who said there's something that we can and we should do uh, around HIV. So we were very fortunate to be able to work with them and get to know people inside the Bush administration. And uh, Tony Fauci was there. I, we, we all remember his name. And uh, he was there at the time and instrumental in the design of the program. It started, interestingly, as a mother-to-child transmission, the the admission administration of nevirapine, which was a drug that prevented the transmission of HIV from the mother to um, her child. Uh, so it was a small initiative. And then the Bush administration took it and said, well, we can't just save the kid because then you'd be creating a generation of orphans. We need to save the mom and the parents, too. And so expanded it out to um, really for the first time discuss and administer the wide scale treatment of people with HIV. Um, to our to our national chagrin, the strategy in the United States over all administrations prior to Bush had been prevention only. So if you had it, if you weren't fortunate to prevention, you were you lived a death sentence until, and that was it. But the wide scale provision of treatment was unheard of because it was viewed to be impractical, too expensive. Uh, too complicated. And it was the PEPFAR program that really made that happen. Happy to say more. I could go on, but I'll I'll let you, <laughs> I'll breathe for a second and let you come in. Yeah, thank you. Well, I know um, I'll, I can turn to Patricia, who I know is just going to ask a little bit more about the establishment of PEPFAR and, and the role of the faith community and then what particular role faith communities have. So Patricia, um, let me turn to you. Yes. Um, and you spoke a little bit about the way the faith community came together with other kind of uh, groups of experts uh, to push the Bush administration. Um, what was the level of engagement of the faith community, both here in the US and, and, and faith communities from around the world and how those two connected? Uh, if you can share a little bit about that, that would be great. Yeah, the role of the faith community in 
standing up and helping PEPFAR be a success can't be overstated. It was essential. Um, I, I referenced this, this a bit, the experience of uh, our churches all over the world and what they were experiencing in terms of trying uh, ministering to their to their congregations and ministering to the sick and you know unfortunately watching far too many of them die relating that experience back uh, to policymakers here in Washington was critical um, I'll never forget uh, Jesse Helms may not be a name that's familiar to everyone in your audience but an arch conservative Republican from North Carolina and I can't remember the name of the bishop that we that came from Africa I think it was the Bishop of Tanzania at the time and met one-on-one -on -one with this very conservative senator and had a profound impact on the senator's views on uh, why we should be tackling HIV, what can be done about it, and the role of the faith community on the ground uh, could have. So you, you see that dual role. It's both bringing voice and then also the provision of assistance uh, directly to, to their flocks. And so the, the faith community brought enormous credibility enormous experience and enormous political weight to this urgent humanitarian crisis. Yeah, and, you know, looking back when at the time, I guess HIV was considered um, a pandemic, I should say HIV AIDS, uh, I imagine this was not an easy task uh, to make sure that there's an authorization of a program like PEPFAR. Could you speak on some of the challenges uh, that the faith community specifically faced uh, at the time, especially considering some of the stigmatization that was happening in the churches also at the time and, and how you were able to overcome that? Oh yeah, I mean the faith community, yeah. We shouldn't lionize the faith community across the board. Some faith communities were quite destructive uh, in their treatment of people with HIV. The, the, the um, raising of stigma and the shunning of people from their churches and from their even from their families um, was a real factor. So the faith community was not universally positive factor in this, but other parts of the faith community were absolutely, as I mentioned, absolutely essential to this to the solving of the, the raising of the voice for solutions and then the actual implementation. So like always, the church is complicated. And I don't mean the Episcopal Church or Anglican Church specifically, but the faith community writ large. Um, so it, it, yeah, I, I actually remind me exactly what your, your question was about, uh, what additional role do they play or the challenges that they faced? The challenges, uh, they faced as they were pushing for authorization right. of paper. Yeah. Sorry. I, um, I mean, they, they faced a number of the same similar challenges and arguments here in Washington that we're seeing and experiencing today. Um, Republicans and Democrats, really differ on issues related to family planning and to abortion. And as a, a global health bill, there was a lot of disagreement and knockdown drag out fights about how to, where should this money go? Who should it go to? Who shouldn't it go to? Which um, I hear echoes of today in, in our current debate. What we had then, which we are sorely lacking at the moment is a well of goodwill and relationship between parties and a firm focus on, we have to respond to this emergency. The lives at stake, because we can save lives with these, with this treatment and with prevention strategies, overwhelms our partisan differences on abortion or family planning or other things. And both sides had to give a little. 
Um, I remember, I'll never forget the debate in the House Foreign Affairs Committee around uh, prevention. So you had some element of Republicans were saying, well, it's only abstinence. That's the only strategy that will has 100% effective uh, in preventing. And then you had de some Democrats saying, well, it's only condoms, that we have to be practical about this. And of course, so we, we ended up with this compromise policy of ABC, abstinence, be faithful, and the use of condoms. And everyone had to swallow hard because one side didn't like a piece of it. But that was uh, at a time when compromise and negotiation um, were not dirty words. And in Washington these days, I begin to wonder whether that's still possible. Yeah, that's that's a good reminder uh, that, you know, the challenges you faced then uh, are still true today. But even with that, uh, PEFA has historically enjoyed bipartisan support. Uh, I'm wondering if, if uh, you could glean into some of the ingredients that um, you were able to overcome all those challenges uh, at the time and get this bipartisan political support. Um, yeah. Yeah. There, there's, there's no substitute for having a conservative evangelical president supported. <laughs> the fact that President Bush put his name and political effort behind it um, turned many people who, many conservatives who might have been opposed to look again. Um, so that had a huge impact, and 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 he was backed by people of faith across the political spectrum. Another thing is that the program really tackled this challenge in a different way. It wasn't about how much money was being spent, although there was a lot of money put on the table to be sure, but it was really focused on the metrics. It was one of the first programs that I can recall that said, spelled out very clearly, we're going to put 2 million people on treatment. We're going to care for... Um, Sorry, we're going to prevent 7 million infections and we're going to care for 10 million people impacted. Um, those metrics over five years and with X amount of money. And the president put himself and his team uh, on notice that we're going to track these metrics every six months and I want a personal report. And of course, as advocates on the outside, we were like, oh, you're moving too slowly and you need to do more. And we would celebrate when, you know, progress was made and it was very transparent and very accountable toward those metrics. Um, and many programs have replicated that since, but it really blazed a trail in being clear, not just about how much money is being spent to attract, to attack the problem, but what the results we should expect as American taxpayers from that investment. And it's obviously after 20 years, it's beyond the president, President Bush's wildest dreams about what it would accomplish, 25 million people um, whose lives have been saved by this program over 20 years. Yes, indeed, uh, very successful program uh, this far. Um, so in addition to PEFAR, the Global Fund to Fight HIV, uh, TB and Malaria is another program that works around the world to fight AIDS. Uh, sometimes PEFAR and the Global Fund uh, confuse people in our churches. Uh, could you say a little bit uh, what how these two programs differ from one another? Sure. Even as they work in parallel. <laughs> yeah, they well they work in parallel. They actually work together. Um, they are really collaborative now. They probably competed and fought with each other for the first seven or eight years, but it is now really a, a collaborative relationship. But I'll try I'll try to answer your question clearly. PEPFAR is a U.S., what we would call a bilateral program, meaning the United States is providing 100% of the funding. 
The Global Fund is a international multilateral where lots of countries come together uh, and pool their funding together to accomplish their goals. So PEPFAR is US, Global Fund is multilateral. PEPFAR is focused only on HIV, the prevention, treatment, and care of HIV. The Global Fund is AIDS, TB, and malaria. And in fact, the Global Fund is the largest provider of assistance for TB and malaria on the planet. It's, it's number two on HIV because only PEPFAR is, is larger. The other thing is PEPFAR, um, the other big difference is PEPFAR is focused on about 45 to 50 countries. The Global Fund works in 130 countries around the world. Um, how they do their work is, is quite different too, but I don't want to get uh, bogged down in, in the technicalities, but those are the those are the three big differences between the two. And so while they um, while they do have different missions, different setups, different funding, they are extremely collaborative on the ground. So for example, I think it's in, I mean, well, it's examples across the world, but in Zambia, the, I think it's the Global Fund that procures the medicine uh, and PEPFAR pays for the laboratory and the assistance uh, to, to do the work. So it's even in a particular program, they will have funding and support different things that are collaborative. Yes, and it's been very uh, hopeful to see how both programs pivot during the COVID pandemic and continue to use that model uh, yeah. to respond to the recent uh, pandemic. Um, lastly, before I turn over to Rebecca again, um, just from what you shared and from your experience, given where we are, uh, what are the key top uh, recommendations, uh, given your experience, you would share with us uh, as a faith community as we push for the next reauthorization uh, to ensure that PEFI is sustainable? So top recommendations to advocate for reauthorization? All right, well, let's start with prayer <laughs> because at this point, and I mean that, you know, I know I'm laughing, but it is, uh, it is not a great situation because as I mentioned earlier, some of these conflicts are not new ones, but what is new is the lack of goodwill and well of trust and relationship between the two parties. And we have advocates who are raising money and they're getting clicks. And so the partisan and polarization of this town and this country uh, is, is now impacting one of the most successful foreign aid programs we've ever had. Um, we absolutely need everyone's voice. Please work with the Office of Government Relations of the church, join e EPPN and, you know, reach out to your member of Congress and your two senators to, to say how much uh, you support this program and to talk about its results over 20 years, which are really unparalleled results. Um, the last thing I would say is talk to your community members, whether that's a letter to the editor, whether that's talking with your social justice committee in your parish or your neighbors. One of the reasons I, I often talk about this program is because it is nonpartisan. Even if you talk with your neighbor across the fence who you don't agree with on most things, this is something that the two sides have come together on over decades now and has had remarkable success. It's something that the American taxpayer should be very, very proud of. Um, it is a it is both an act and a symbol of American generosity and ingenuity around the world. And frankly, I think at a time like this, this might move some people, it might not some others, but you know, at a moment where Africa is looking for partners, uh, geopolitical competition with other nations around the world is something that we need to be thinking about. America's 
generosity and innovation and goodwill in saving people's lives across the world has a real impact on how America is perceived and, and the values that we carry forward. So I would, I would bring all those arguments and share them with your friends, neighbors, and congregations. Thank you, Tom. Rebecca, over to you. Yeah, thank you. And just, you know, so to be clear that the program was established in 2003 and it has been reauthorized several times, but the re reauthorization actually expired September 30th. So yes, it did. You all have heard us who are EPPN members pushing for the reauthorization of PEPFAR, also asking Congress to fund the government and reauthorize some other essential programs. Um, but it, it's a really critical moment. Uh, the, the, the program needs to be authorized for then funding to be appropriated for it. Um, we have seen leadership from the Bush Institute. Um, we have seen former President Bush uh, himself write an op-ed um, on this. We have seen really this bipartisan surge of people making all kinds of different arguments, Tom, just as you did. There's a moral case to be made for this. There's a development case. You can make an economic case, a U.S. global leadership case. Um, but it, it really is a critical moment. Um, the other thing I would just say, of course, that for those of us who are Episcopalians, we are part of the third largest Christian community globally. And so we have uh, an opportunity, an obligation to uh, honor and lift up those voices and perspectives. And we know that uh, Archbishop Tabo Makoba who's the Archbishop of Cape Town and the primate of the Anglican Church of Southern Africa, um, spoke before the UN and shared that he needed the US and members of Congress to reauthorize PEPFAR for five years. Um, we're working with the Anglican Health and Community Network who are asking us to help them push for this reauthorization. Um, so just that there's something about, you know, our, our nature as a, as a global church. But Tom, I wonder if you could just speak to that as, as you're, working on the U.S.-based advocacy side, how do you help, um, especially churches and people of faith, understand that they can have a role in pushing for something that feels like it has an impact very far away? Yeah. I, I guess the only way I can help is to say that I've seen it. I've seen it yeah. happen. I've seen the voices uh, of people of faith around the world, particularly to be honest, Anglicans from, from Africa just have an, an incredibly powerful voice in the halls of power in other countries, whether it's across Europe or here in America. Um, I've seen it happen, and PEPFAR wouldn't be here today were it not for those voices. Um, I'm really worried that if it doesn't get reauthorized and what that will mean long term for the funding. And, you know, this is not a theoretical challenge. We make a lifetime commitment every time we put someone on antiretrovirals because we take that away, that's it. So this is America's commitment to millions of families around the world and communities. And not only would it go against, I think, our, our values and what it means to be an American, it would be just devastating at a, at a humanitarian level and at a reputational level and every other level. So I don't feel like this is an, an option. Um, and it's deeply saddening to see certain interests playing games with a program that has had such profound change for so many across the world. Yeah, thank you. And it it is, you know, incredible to hear about the lives saved um, through this program. I, you know, it's it's really hard to 
overstate the, the impact. Um, we often are asked about why um, we should focus on international issues. Um, you know, we there's of course a lot of issues in the U.S. Um, a lot of concerns that that people are facing. How how do you answer that? I know you've spent much of your career focused on international work, um, and and will be going to um, to an organization focused on development and humanitarian relief. Um, but could you just speak to why that? dimension matters and, and, and why we would take our attention, um, again, for something uh, that, that can feel far away and distant. Right. Well, I find answering this in the context of a community of faith easier than I do one that's secular, because who is our neighbor is not bound by uh, political borders. Uh, our Anglican and Christian family extends across seas and our mandate is to uphold the, the dignity of every person, not just those who happen to be American or who happen to be in my neighborhood. Um, I think there's lots of self-interested reasons to care about what's going on far away. And I, I, I hate to cite a tragedy to make my point, but the pandemic, every variant that uh, was impacted in this, that sorry, that impacted people and took lives in this country came from somewhere else. And because we are an interconnected global uh, community now. And in so many respects, that's very, very good. But it also means that we have to care about the health and well-being of people in places that we don't even know where they are. Um, we learned that lesson the hard way during the pandemic, and it's true with climate change. It's true with many other transnational threats. So um, there is a direct, even if you're not motivated by uh, our common humanity, uh, you should be motivated by what kind of planet we might be leaving our children and the health and well-being of your own neighborhood, because as we have seen it, it's, it is very, very connected. Yeah, thank you. Uh, just before we open up to audience questions, how have you stayed motivated and committing to, committed to doing this work um, during your time? Um, two things. I've been able, very, very fortunate enough to travel and see both the before and after of how the impacts of our advocacy and really well done um, American as well as multilateral programs impact people on, uh, on the ground. Seeing a community that had no treatment for HIV transform once it receives treatment. Um, nothing is more inspiring than that. And the hard work of the of the people on the ground who are who are fighting literally for their own lives and the lives of their communities and their families. I also have been really enjoyed over the years the seeing the success and the bringing together of unlikely allies and people who never thought they would agree on anything come together to do something bigger than themselves. Um, I enjoy the political game. I enjoy being able to work within that system and try to make things happen. Uh, this is, it's been a tough couple of years, right? That is being able to do that is be getting harder and harder, but I'm not giving up on the hope that we will still be able to do that. And in fact, uh, we are continuing to talk with Republicans and Democrats on both sides at very senior levels to try to find a way through on PEPFAR and several other challenges. So it's still doable. Um, about 200 bills pass Congress every year. Every one of them is bipartisan. You know, they're not all as substantial as PEPFAR, but, you know, th th this still happens. Now, we don't hear about it because they don't get clicks and they're not there's not everyone. Everything gets covered if it's got a fight. So um, 
it gives me hope that there's still room for compromise and for negotiation and for bipartisanship. And so we just need to demand that it continues in this area too. Thank you. And we will say that we put an action alert in the chat so you can take action through our online system. You can call your member of Congress, request a meeting, talk about the role that the faith community played in the establishment of PEPFAR, um, share the, the letters and the requests from um, Archbishop Tabo to help give context again that these are our relationships and that really we can go to our members of Congress and say that this is something um, that we want. So we can open now for audience questions. Um, I see a few in the chat now, but if there's others, feel free to write them. Um, okay, a question here, Tom, is, is about um, whether there are any gaps in PEPFAR or if there's other um, programs you would hope to see on global health more generally. Uh, gaps in PEPFAR. Um, in terms of the fight against HIV and AIDS, I think PEPFAR has done a really good job of adapting from an emergency response, which was messy and fast and just getting as much medicine as we as they could to the continent uh, and around the world, to now working with um, young women and uh, through their dreams program or LGBTQ, where the disease is increasingly being concentrated in other marginalized communities. The program over 20 years has done a really good job of, and to use your phrase, filling in some of those gaps and to adapt according to the to the pandemic. Now, of course, it's only HIV. It's it's not focusing on malaria or TB or maternal health or hunger and nutrition. So it is not a it is not a solution to every problem. I would actually argue that its focus has been one of its greatest strengths. It was not trying to do everything everywhere. It was trying to do one thing very clearly and very um, in a, with a big impact. Um, I hope that answers the question if I understood it correctly. Yes, thank you. Um, and do you think that PEPFAR could serve as a model for other public health, global health oriented programs? Again, Absolutely. if there gets to yeah. be an appetite for their, that kind of vision that, that we heard you speak about um, early in the Bush administration? I, not only can it be, it already has. Yeah. Um, uh, Feed the Future, which yep. the Office of Government Relations and Bread for the World and One all worked on some years ago, has those specific metrics and real focus. Um, Power Africa, which is trying to get first-time electricity access across the continent of Africa for people who need it, also modeled um, to, to a large extent on PEPFAR. So there are lots of programs that have modeled that focus and, and sort, of, um, sort of metric-focused approach uh, and I think that there, uh, I think lots of programs should continue to keep that model. It, it makes it really clear and accountable what we're trying to do. As you transition to your new role, could you just speak about what you hope to accomplish um, as you take on that position? Sure. So moving over to interaction, which for those of you who don't know what it is, is the association of all the major relief and development and humanitarian organizations in the United States. So think Episcopal Relief and Development, Red Cross, SAVE, CARE, um, Oxfam. We all belong to uh, the One Campaign. We all belong to this association called Interaction. And it, it is meant to be both a platform as well as a resource provider and a voice for the community, for the sector in Washington, DC. So, I mean, I'm just 
thrilled that the board asked me to come over to help provide some leadership um, to this community in this way. I think their hope and my hope um, is that, you know, this is a community that mobilizes more than $15 billion a year toward international relief and development. It mobilizes millions of American voters. That is, frankly, political weight that is under leveraged. So we need to be, and I think we can be, a bigger, louder, bolder voice for our community and the interests that we fight for around the world in Washington. And that's what I hope I can do. Well, we hope to stand alongside you in doing that. Um, it has been such a pleasure to work with you at one and with your team. Um, and again, I, I'll just love hearing you say that faith-based advocacy does matter, um, that, that our voices really can have an impact. Um, you know, there can be some hard years, but there can also be some really transformative life-saving successes. Um, so to hear some of that today has just been really inspiring um, for us and I hope for our network too. Um, just before we wrap up, anything final to say, Patricia or, or Tom, do you have anything in closing? Just thank you, Tom. Uh, you know, some of us haven't been in this space for as long as you have. Uh, it's been really inspirational to Are kind you of hear. I'm old? <laughs> <laughs> I am. Um, you know, just kind of learning from some of the uh, experiences from back then when, you know, things seem to be easier then than now, but apparently, you know, there's some similarities in, in the struggle from today compared to back then as well. So thank you for sharing that and thank you for sharing your wisdom. Uh, we hope to continue to work with you. Well, let me just repeat the thanks back um, because it's just, it's a real pleasure to be with all of you. And Rebecca, thank you for your leadership. Um, it makes, it really does matter. Uh, the voices of people of faith, and I'm going to express my bias of Episcopalians, particularly who are known to be bipartisan. We've got people in both parties sitting in our pews and have a practical, credible, uh, legitimate voice in these policy debates. And it is utterly essential. Um, the people, if you're not there, just imagine who is. So we really, really need your voice and grateful for it and grateful for all that you are doing. Thank you so much, Tom. Thank you everyone for joining. Take action, um, join the Fiscal Policy Network if you're not already a member. And uh, we will look forward to seeing you on our next webinar and conversation. Tom, again, with so much gratitude. And we will be praying for you in your new role as you make this transition and remain just, again, so grateful for your leadership and also for your time today. Thanks. Great. All right. Thanks. The Office of Government Relations aims to represent the policy priorities of the Episcopal Church to the U.S. government in Washington, D.C., and to influence policy and legislation on critical issues, all while highlighting voices and experiences of Episcopalians and Anglicans globally. The office facilitates the Episcopal Public Policy Network, a grassroots network of Episcopalians engaged in the Ministry of Public Policy Advocacy. Take action and learn more by following the links in the description. The Episcopal's podcast is produced by the staff of the Office of Government Relations, with support from our podcast engineer, Ellie Singer, and project manager, Chris Sikama. Thanks for listening, and join us next time on Episcopals.
you're invited to join thousands of Episcopalians, neighbors, and friends this summer at the Love Always Revival at the KFC Yum Center in Louisville, Kentucky. On Saturday, June 22nd, get immersed in inspiring worship and community, deepen your love for God, kick off the 81st General Convention, and extend a warm welcome to folks discovering the Episcopal Church. The revival is free to attend, so bring your friends. If you're from a neighboring diocese, check in with your diocesan revival champion to find out about group travel options. You can find more information along with registration at iam.ec lovealways.